Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner, the host and producer. This food and wine show is being brought to you directly from Paris, France. Here, we give you a taste of this delicious world with all its colorful and diverse personalities that make up the Paris culinary landscape. So, sit back and relax and enjoy Paris good food and wine. episode from this early February springtime in Paris is all about restaurants and wines. The first segment features a longtime colleague of mine named Heidi Ellison, who, after we worked together at the International Herald Tribune in the early 90s, since rebranded the International New York Times, went on to found Paris Update, her best restaurants list for 2019, published recently on her site. These are the restaurants she'll be telling us about in our first interview. Then we switch to the world of wine, and I do mean the world of wine, because as a departure from our regular wine discussions here on Paris Good Food and Wine, which focus mainly on French wines, we speak with Florent Berrer, a native Bordelais, whose business is importing and selling high-end wines from regions like Australia, Germany, Spain, Italy, Portugal, and Chile here in France to a predominantly French consumer. We discuss this ambitious yet successful business he founded 10 years ago following the outstanding day of wine tasting he hosted at the Plaza Athene here in Paris last week. I also have a big announcement My first cookbook just published. It's called Le CBD Café Cookbook. In it, you'll find over 50 recipes that all incorporate hemp-derived CBD oil. Note in the U.S., the FDA has classified hemp-derived cannabidiol, commonly known as CBD, as a food supplement, since there are no known narcotic effects, but there are a plethora of reported health benefits. Recipes in the CBD Cafe cookbook are for delicious meals and snacks like strawberry dark chocolate banana CBD smoothie, apple sausage Dutch baby, buttered wild mushrooms on toast, fish and shrimp ceviche with popcorn, Texas pulled pork with cayenne barbecue sauce, classic Italian meatballs, French beef bourguignon slow cooked, steak with creamy garlic parmesan sauce, and sweet potato pie with cinnamon roll crust. And not to forget our furry friends, the last chapter, chapter 12, is devoted to homemade treats for your cat and dog. The book is out now and available on Amazon. We're giving away five digital copies this month of the cookbook. To qualify, share the link to the show on your social media, such as Twitter and Instagram. And in your review of the show on SoundCloud or iTunes, mention the CBD Cafe Cookbook. So, all aboard now as I take you on another meandering stroll through culinary Paris. Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. IOT, the Internet of Things. IOT Shipping tracks your value assets using the Internet of Things technology that gives you data points 
based on temperature, movement, and geolocation. For more information, contact us at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. So for the show today, we have the great location of the little Suédois Café, or Café Suédois, which is like the little Swedish café at the Swedish Cultural Center, which is right in the heart of the Marais, just around the corner from the Pablo Picasso Museum. It's a wonderful little nook, usually quite lively, and joining me today is Heidi Ellison, who is the fantastic founder and editor of ParisUpdate.com, which uh, talks about a lot more than just food and wines. So tell, tell us a little bit about your 14-year endeavor now. Thank you, Paige. I founded Paris Update 14 years ago, and it's a weekly review of cultural life in Paris. We do reviews of restaurants every week, an art exhibition, sometimes a film, sometimes more idiosyncratic things about... Uh, I recently did an article that was an interview with a... The only, one of the three women rabbis in Paris, for example. But that's an unusual piece for... Usually it's reviews of restaurants, exhibitions, films, and other insider things. There's also a listing of events for the coming week. It comes out every Wednesday, so you know what's happening for the weekend. And a photo of the week. And that's about it. We have different contributors, journalists from all over the world, really. So, voila. Yeah, it's really a labor of love, and, and you're so in-depth. I mean, you've been here for, well, actually, it's kind of incredible. I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this interview. I think you are the one person in Paris that I've known for the longest time, you know, intermittently, but we first met when we were both working at the International Herald Tribune in 1990, um, and so I don't think you've ever left, right? No, I've been here the whole time, so I'm a real Parisian now, I guess. And that's, I think, what really shows on your ParisUpdate.com is you're so in-depth. You're really an insider. So whether it's film or food or culture, it's, it's all there. But today we're going to talk about your top 2019 restaurant picks. And I, when I was uh, looking through that, I got so excited because some of your picks were exactly exactly mine as well. And so I thought, oh, wow, we're we're kind of in sync here, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Let's start with, um, I mean, let's just go down your, your list, if you don't mind. Okay, great. Uh, you said you know Condessa, which is um, a beautiful little restaurant on a very kind of dead street in the 9th arrondissement, but inside you have beautiful decor and a charming chef who's from Mexico, and he makes amazing food, and he just got his first Michelin star and um, it was obvious he was going to get one, though, because his food is so good. And he, he, mix, he makes really creative dishes using just a touch of Mexican influence, but French ingredients. For example, uh, 
Last time I was there, I had a corn tostada with creamy goat cheese, two things you wouldn't normally find together, or um, a sweet, this was amazing, a sweet potato foam with mandarin sorbet and amaranth seeds, which gave it some crunch, so you had the coldness and the sweetness. And this was an, in, he, he told me he um, thought of making this a dessert, but it was actually between, a kind of a palate cleanser between courses. It was fantastic. And then another dish had hibiscus foam on it. It was duck breast with hibiscus from the hibiscus berry, South American kind of thing, influence. So he's brilliant at doing that, and he's adorable, and he'll come out and chat with uh, his customers, as you know, I think. He is, he is, he is adorable. He's very personable, and he's young. I mean, before he got his star, this just in just like a few weeks ago, his first Michelin. And he, oh, the thing is, he pays such great attention to detail. You know, even the di each dish is beautiful. And last time I was there, he had these gourds from Mexico, hand-painted gourds, that all very intricately painted that he served some of the food in. Just every, It's attention to detail in everything, the decor of the food and the, the dishware, everything. Yeah, a true, a true dining experience. It's not cheap, but um, you'd expect to pay. It's not outrageously expensive either. You'd expect to pay a good price for what you get there. It's worth it. Okay, great. Now let's now moving on because we we're probably gonna we're gonna try to touch on all ten. The other choice of yours that really stood out to me was L'Innocence, Innocence. And um, when my mom was here in May, uh, she and I got to dine there. That was actually for my my birthday, and I was blown away by that young female chef. She's about the same age as Indra at La Condesa. Uh, young and just so imaginative and in fact it's actually kind of the restaurant is physically just kind of right around the corner from La Condesa it's a bit of a hot spot there right by Pigal. Anyway so what's your take on that? Well that restaurant is a good luck charm I think because it's a tiny little place like I think there are 16 or 18 um, seats. This is where Daniel Rose of Spring fame, the American chef who founded Spring and now runs Cuckoo in New York which is hugely popular got his start he had a, he's that was his first restaurant so now um he moved on he still has two restaurants in paris but spring is no longer around one of my favorite restaurants but anyway so she's it's a good place for her to start and her name is Anne Legrand, and she's she just stands there very quiet behind the counter cooking away well i think it's her husband who does the serving but she's amazing because she only she really likes to cook vegetables and when i was there i had this very simple dish of endive, which you think, mm, endive, endives, kind of boring, but no, not the way she makes them. She, she uh, added, um, she cooked them with a strong aged pecorino that she imported from Sardinia, and then that was sprinkled on top, and then the, it was kind of a meaty flavor from Laudo de Colonata, the, the kind of fat that melts on your mouth from the special pork special pigs and then there was a poultry reduction so it gave this simple humble vegetable uh, just made it incredibly delicious so everything there is cooked to perfection and the dessert was fairly amazing too it was a three-way uh, three chocolate dessert you had ganache cake and crumble with orange blossom ice cream on top You know, I'm glad you mentioned the orange blossom because that was when I dined there with with my mom. Um, that was the one of the big takeaways for me. She served us fried acacia flowers, and I actually, since it's an open kitchen, you actually can watch her as she's you know 
cooking all, all evening long. And I, I saw her, you know, f- delicately frying those tiny little paper thin flowers. And I thought to myself, this is a master at work. So yeah, and well, your descriptions are, are wonderful. I, I do know, though, that that's actually not her husband, because I, I asked as well. It's just they're just business partners. So, but you, yeah, you would think it's so common to have like the husband and wife team, though it's often the woman who's the front of the house and the man who's in the kitchen. Okay, so let's move on to another one that I knew on your list, which also is like another bullseye is um, Obascu, Obascu on Rue Roemer in the third arrondissement. So tell me how you came about discovering that place. Well, I have been going there for many, many, many years because it's always been called Obescu, and the first owner made it into a great Basque restaurant. And But since then, it's he left. It's been sold a few times, but now it has a new chef owner. So I went there recently to try it, see what he was up to. And it's still Basque, and we were lucky enough to go there in the fall when he was doing game, and it was just amazing. Because I said to my friend, oh, look at this on the menu. We don't see this very often. Lièvre à la royale. You hardly ever see that on the menu because it's incredibly hard to make. It's like, I can't even, it's so hard to describe it. It's like it has to do with scraping the meat off a hair, a wild hair, and then mixing the meat with spices and foie gras, and then wrapping it all up in the skin and marinating it for days with wine and spices and chocolate and all kinds of things. And then it simmers for 48 hours or something. like. That. I mean, there are different recipes, there are different ways of making it. But So you get this dish that just doesn't look like much. It's just a really chocolate brown dish. And then you taste it, and it's like so complex and so dark and kind of chocolatey. And it's fantastic. It's like nothing you've ever tasted. So I highly recommend that. And he also does another dish that's extremely rare. Wait, before you move on, say that. Say the name of that dish again. Lièvre à la royale. Lièvre, it means hair in, in um, French. And the other dish she makes is called, which I didn't taste because it costs 140 euros for two people, and you have to order it in advance. It's called l'oreiller de la belle aurore, and that is this incredibly huge pâté en croûte, but made with big hunks of meat and... Uh, it comes from Lyon. It was invented by Brias Savarin, who's like the god, the god of cuisine in France. It has 15 kinds of meat in it, mostly game meats, foie gras. Oh, I forgot to mention there's foie gras in the in the Lievre Royale as well. Breast chicken, truffles, and pistachios. And if anyone saw the the film Big Night, which is not not a new film, but they make a dish very similar to that in Big Night. So that's kind of so, and what about the color? Like, um, one of the things, too, that really sticks with me with Obescu is that the um, it's kind of like one of those, well, let's be frank, it's kind of one of those hole-in-the-wall places. But the food is just, I mean, you don't even pay attention to your surroundings. You're so engrossed with the food. So it's one of those restaurants that are kind of like stuck back in time where decor wasn't really an issue. Is that is that? It's true. It, um, it's kind of old-fashioned, but he's, he's spiffed it up a little bit. It looked brighter and fresh paint, and uh, it looked a little better the last the last time I was there with this new owner. So, 
All right, great. Well, okay. So then another one on your list, I actually don't know all the ones on your, on your list. So it's a bit of a discovery for me too. But, um, but one of the ones that I do know about, because it's very famous, and it's, I guess it's just been taken over, as you'll explain to us a little bit more, by Michelle Rostang, which is one of the big dynasties, one of the big culinary dynasties here in, uh, well, not just Paris, but in France. So tell us about Le, le Train Bleu. The Tremble is in the Gare de Lyon. It's a historic restaurant that dates from like turn of the 20th century. And it is the most amazing decor of any restaurant in Paris. Every inch of this huge, huge restaurant is decorated with, with um, paintings, sculptures. There's, not, there's nothing that's not decorated. And it's, it's just a fantastic place to go. And you have the waiters running around in their long aprons and the travelers running around with their suitcases and... Um, before, unfortunately, the food was not very good. It has never been great, but since Michel Rostand took it over very recently, it's much, much better. And I do recommend going there for the food as well. We had, um, when I was there, we had, I had uh, quenelle, which was a Lyonnais dish with Newberg sauce of seafood and sherry sauce. That was delicious. And then the, the highlight for me was the gigot d'agneau, the leg of lamb, which they bring to your table on a cart and carve in front of you in the old-fashioned way. And it's just, it's just lovely. It's a great experience. It's not cheap either, but, um, but again, it's worth it for the, just the experience of being there and being able to eat well, for, finally. <laughs> Yeah, because people have always talked about the decor there, and um, and that place. What comes to mind for me is this is gonna this is a, maybe a little bit outrageous, but um, there's a Mr. Bean. I don't know if you're a fan of Mr. Bean. He's a he's a UK uh, English comic, and what's his name Rowan Rowan something. But and there's a scene where I'm I'm sure it's at Le Train Bleu where he's trying to eat oysters and he just can't can't do it. So he ends up um, sliding all the oysters in the in a woman's handbag who's sitting next to her. <laughs> so whenever I think of Le Train Bleu, but that aside, it's really one of the landmark restaurants here here in Paris. Okay, well, now for the rest on your list, and it would be fun to be able to at least touch on um, on the rest of them, even if not quite so in-depth. Let me mention a few of them. Um, what, something completely different and new is Double Dragon, which is hugely popular with young people. You might have to queue up. They don't take reservations, but the food is fantastic. I had heard that the noise levels were really bad, loud music, but in fact... I think they'd had a lot of complaints, so they had turned. It wasn't bad at all. The week went in big group, and we had a great time. We had fantastic food. It's small plates, and um, it's run by. It's owned by the owners of Le Servant, which is right down the street. This is in the 11th arrondissement. Katya and Tatiana Leva, and they're half Filipina, half half French. So they have. They know that it's a mixed Asian food. So it's but with French influences as well. So think, we had things like uh, crispy fried tofu with Conte cheese and XO sauce, which is a spicy seafood sauce from Hong Kong, and that was fantastic. Everything we had was fantastic. The cockles with green curry sauce, even the broccoli, fried broccoli with vinegar and kimchi mayonnaise, and everything was different, completely different. So you didn't, you know, some of these restaurants with small plates, they just, they kind of cheat by using the same garnishes on different dishes, not there. Everything was completely different from everything else and a feast. And it's a nice decor, lively ambiance. It's really it's fun, fun place to go. And, of course, the Bastille is still, I mean, even after... 
I mean, it's been the trendy spot for over a decade now, maybe maybe two decades or something. So, I mean, that's when you say that that's kind of a young, kind of a young destination. That's definitely the neighborhood for it. It's not really Bastille. It's up. It's on the Rue Saint Maur, I think, uh, which is a bit off the beaten track, but it's developing as a, a food destination in Paris because there's also Le Servant right down the street, and there's a, what's there are a couple of other really good restaurants in that on that street. Um, another restaurant that's sort of similar but not Asian is La Traversée, and, but similar in that they serve small plates. It's um, it's in Montmartre. It's just a fun place to go. Everybody's really friendly. It's kind of funky, and but the food again is really really delicious. Uh, I'll give you a few examples: chopped chicken livers, which I love, with kumquat pickles and hazelnuts, with something really unusual, delicious. Haddock croquettes uh, that were succulent. Not greasy with nice yuzu flavored sauce, and uh, what else did we have? Poached pears. Oh, poached pears for dessert, which sounds kind of boring, but no, they put bergamot ice cream with it, bilberries, and black sesame crumble, and it was fantastic. For the listeners, I mean, you can't see the expressions on my face, but as as Heidi is describing all these dishes, I'm just like ooing and awing over it. I mean, you're doing a great job describing these things. What what part of Montmartre is that in? Is that up on the Butte Montmartre, or is it kind of down below by the Klinienko? Yeah, it's a little bit off the beaten track, but it's not far from uh, the main, you know, Rue des Abbesses. You go up behind there, and uh, so it's not where all the tourists are. It's not at all a touristy neighborhood, but it's not far from the the places people would be. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now tell us a few more. <laughs> And you're also really piquing my interest in discovering, uh, I mean, I'm constantly out discovering places, but that's why it's always great to to look at your, you know, your weekly newsletter and then also, well, actually, to, you know, to talk with you. It's always fun to talk with other other food writers because, you, you know, you always learn things, so... Uh, some of my readers are always saying to me, why do you always review restaurants in the 11th arrondissement or the 10th arrondissement or the 9th even? I said, that's because that's where the creative young chefs are all opening their restaurants. If you go to the 5th, the 6th, the restaurants that are more, they're more established restaurants, prices are higher, and these young chefs can't afford to open there. So here's another one on the ten, in the 10th arrondissement, which is called Surmer. It's another one that does their place, but it's small plates, sorry. And uh, again, everyone is completely different. We got a tasting menu, 35 euros per person for like 10 dishes, each one totally different, different fish, different treatments, different garnishes. They were, they were, they were really quite brilliant, I thought. A few um, examples, they have a thing called pouce pied, which is a shellfish that looks really gross. It means um, goose, it's gooseneck barnacle in English, and um, it looks like this prehistoric monster toes or something like that. But though, that's not something that's cooked, but it's just fun to eat. And they squirt all over you when you eat them. And then they had things like marinated sardines from Saint-Jean-de-Luz with beetroot puree, reyu sauce, which is an Asian chili sauce, mizuna, which is a Japanese mustard green, and dill flowers. That's just one example. Another would be horse mackerel ceviche with botarga, which are dried fish eggs, aster and coriander, and on top of that, blood red peaches. Beautiful. That was must have been this summer when I was there, because obviously they would only serve seasonal foods. But and a delicious dessert as well. Genoise cake with plums, whipped cream, and margarine. So very creative again. 
something a bit different and uh, in the seafood realm. You know, that's the thing, too, that actually stays with me the most um, when I have the privilege of dining out in this city is these chefs who all dine at each other's places as well. You know, they, I mean, just the creativity that they have to have. It's not just the skill in the kitchen. It's not just sourcing the great ingredients, but it's all, it's all these, like, this creativity to keep being original, original, original. Because everything you've just described, you have not repeated one dish, you know, once at all. So everything is, is original. Have to say, you know, chapeau, right? Chapeau to these young chefs, yeah. Definitely. We've mentioned several of them already. And uh... You're listening to Heidi Ellison, founder of ParisUpdate.com. I'm your host of Paris Good Food and Wine, Paige Donner. IoT Shipping. IoT Shipping uses the Internet of Things technology to track and trace your value assets throughout the transport process. Data is monitored by temperature, geolocation, and movement so that you always know where your value assets are and in what condition they are in. Contact them for more information and for a quote at iotshipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz. Thank you for listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Another interesting one that has nothing to do with fine French cuisine is Melt. It's a couple of young French guys went to America. They went all over the place trying barbecue in all the states, meeting the chefs, finding out what was best, and they opened their own. They now have two restaurants in Paris. And to me, it's better than any barbecue I ever ate in America. Everything is succulent, and they have their own smoker and so everything is done properly and like the brisket is like flavorful and fatty and the the ribs are really uh tender and succulent and spicy crust on them everything they have there is really good sugar donut holes for dessert americans are probably getting hungry now uh a really buttery cornbread i recommend that it's very you know simple casual nothing fancy but the food is excellent you know, actually, I come to think of it, I have been there, and I do remember the sides. The sides were very good. The cornbread was great. If it's, it tasted very authentic, and also, it's right near Republique, right? There's one near in the 11th again, and there's one in the 17th, not far from Republique. Uh, what else can I tell you about? Corus is a, a little restaurant run by a really nice couple on the Rue Amelot in the... Tenth, oh, here I go again. <laughs> uh, it's and they have changed chefs, but they have a really good chef. The first chef was Basque; he was fantastic, and now they have a Canadian chef. He made some wonderful things with like fresh oysters with raspberry cream and wood sorrel. That was delicious. Pimentos de Padon, which are those green? Uh, where did they come from? Spain, I guess. Uh, with uh, smoky tarama sprinkled with putag, which is again fish cured fish roe, the best amazing green beans with white peaches, fresh walnuts, and mint emulsion. And then we had a whole duck, which is beautifully baked. And he brought it out and showed it to us before he cut it up and served it kind of family style. And this is a kind of more bourgeois feeling restaurant. It's not as uh, laid back and it's not. It's casual, but it's um, it's more a little more. Uh, family, homey style. It's not, it's not designer, let's say. <laughs> okay. Voilà. 
You know, you've mentioned that Butarg a couple of times, and um, I don't know. I had never had that in the United States. I've only I only came across that when I was here in France, and actually, it was when I was down in the south um, one summer, because it's like that. It comes in kind of like that big sort of orangish yellowish kind of paste yeah like a waxy kind of a paste and i don't know i mean it's 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 kind of it's like it's like the fish style foie gras or something like the like the like like a like a fish if fish were made into foie gras it would be it'd be that but like caviar like it's sort of like caviar but it's it's cured so it has a strong flavor so it just uses a little touch to give added flavor the um the italians are really into that too boat i think it's botaga in Italy and Putag in French. Voila. Okay, so keep us going. I think we have what you have maybe a few more, one more. Oh, did we? Wow, we we cruised right through your list. Sauvage. Ah, yes. Sauvage is in. Uh, ah, voila. There's one that's not in the tenth or the eleventh. It's um, in the. It's over near Sèvres Babylon, near the Bon Marché, and. Um, they had very, very good food. I think a lot of Americans have already been to this restaurant. It's, um, I had things like raw bonito, which is kind of tuna, with raspberries and rings of really mild raw onion, which just worked together so beautifully. And then they had oysters. Oh, this is really good. In cold cucumber soup with thin slices of apple and some fresh chervil. And they, again, fantastic. Out of the shells, of course. And then the main course was uh, really tender pork with a smoky-flavored eggplant and really fantastic gravy on that. So another reliably good uh, best, good bet, always. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's like such a chic area, that Saint-Germain-des-Prés, Le Bon Marché. And sauvage, sauvage in, in, like, translated would actually mean raw, right? Or wild. Yeah, but it's not really wild, it's very... <laughs> restaurant but yeah what is the decor like there i remember it as being quite woody um let me just see if i can find it yeah just a pretty decor you know with shelves of wine bottles and wooden furniture nice little wooden bar and things like that cozy comfortable and, and one thing too that crossed my mind when you're talking about sur mer is it reminded me, the name reminded me of Guy Savoie's old restaurant, Le Toile sur Mer, but not to be confused with those two, because Le Toile sur Mer, of course, closed a couple of years ago, and that was over by the Etoile, Charles de Gaulle Etoile, but this one is just sur Mer. That's in the tent around this month. And all right, well, thank you so much. You know, I had one, maybe one last question is, how did you develop your passion for gastronomy? Because, I mean, everything that you've just described is... Definitely more than eating. <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, this is eating with flair. But no, this is like true gastronomy. How did you develop it? Is that something, Heidi, that, you know, you just, it overtook you while you were living here in Paris or? Well, no, because my mother was not a cook, so I didn't get anything from from her really in the way of gastronomy. But when I, I had to teach myself to cook by reading cookbooks. And then um, when I came to Paris, I had a very good friend who was, a real foodie, and I really learned a lot from him, and we would go out to restaurants together, new restaurants together regularly to test them and talk about the food, and, and he was a very good cook, too, so uh, I have to give him credit for teaching me a lot about about food. Yeah, I guess I'm, I guess it's I guess food and wine is a little bit like, I feel like that for wine. It's like I've discovered wines through people. 
you know, it's it, and my own taste, but it's definitely th- first through people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a wine expert, so I can't really talk about it much. But you're right, you know, it comes from other people giving you things that they love, and then you learn to love them too. What a- well, thank you so much. And uh, again, it's parisupdate.com. And um, you're a veteran of Paris now of, what, 30 years? Or? Mm, getting close, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I get, what, what's, that, what's that famous uh, Gertrude Stein? The United States is my country, but Paris is my home. Yeah, yeah that would be me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with Gert on that one. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paige. Thank you very much. Up next is Florent Berrer of Berrer Captiville Wine Imports and Sales. For a full listing of the wineries represented at his recent Paris tasting, go to our show notes where you'll find a PDF you can download. Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. Contact them at iotshipping.xyz. IOT, the Internet of Things. I'm Paige Donner. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. The show is produced and broadcast from Paris, France. It's Paris's first-ever homegrown English-language radio show about food and wine. So actually, I'm looking straight at La Madeleine as we're doing this interview. Such a beautiful day here. It's like an early spring in Paris. And Florent Barrère has joined me today for a minute after his really hectic last few days after the big uh, wine-tasting salon he just put on at the Plaza Thénée on Monday, which was really so unique here in France because you welcome so many winemakers from all around the world. You're going to tell us a little bit more about your philosophy of how to put on a wine tasting salon here. Yes. Hello, Paige. So it's my pleasure to talk to you and uh, to talk about my company. Well, um, how to resume this story? Uh, first of all, Baron Capdeville is a human story. I think it's something that has, uh, that I have tried to reflect in uh, in that testing in the plaza. Even if the plaza is um, a very high level place, uh, what we call a palace in France, in Paris, I try to put a real human touch in uh, everything I do, and I think it's uh, what makes us very. Um, unique and the public in France is really sensitive to that and uh, I have built that company I started 10 years ago as an ad- a real adventure I changed uh, uh, all my projects in my life um, I always dreamt to to do 
this job. And um, so we started with my partner, Jean-Sébastien Capdeville. Uh, we have been dreaming of creating that company during about maybe 20 years since we were teenagers. And we focused on really high quality wines and real vintners. So at that time, we also ourselves, we, we became vintners. We purchased um, four hectares. I think it's something like eight or nine acres in Saint-Emilion Grand Cru. So we started to produce our own wine. And uh, then we started also to set up a selection that I, um, I built during the last nine years, uh, focusing on quality for sure, but mainly on the human aspect. Uh, something that is really important for me is to, to feel the vintner, to understand who he is, because uh, what I could un un understand with this job is that, um, indeed, when you drink a glass of wine, what you drink is the real soul of the vintner. And uh, the wine doesn't lie. Uh, when you drink something very powerful, And then uh, with a very short finish, generally the people that made the wine is exactly like, like this. Then it can be demonstrative and then there is nobody indeed, in, in fact, beyond the, the appearance. And this is something I am very sensitive to. So uh, I developed real friendships with all the vintners. This is something that is really important for me. And this allowed me to understand who they are and how they make the wine, and uh, how the wines are. And this is something I tried to, to bring uh, into the company and um, to distribute in France. And uh, we are well-known in France today because of that, I think. And this is something that you, you could see on Monday in the plaza. You know, it's true, Florent. I, you know, I have the privilege of going to a good number of wine-tasting salons here in Paris, And um, one of the things, aside from its international star lineup, you know, of vintners, as you said, at, at your salon the other day, there was just so much warmth. I mean, there wasn't one person that I, you know, one winemaker that I approached that didn't, like, show absolute pleasure in in sharing and talking about their wines. I mean, whether they were from Portugal or Germany or Australia or Spain or Argentina or Chile, I mean... Or, or France, too. Everyone was just so warm and open. So that's something I have to say that's really a distinguishing attribute, you know, characteristic about, about your, your salon. Let's talk for a moment about this international array because I think a lot of people might assume, oh, in Paris you can probably get wines from everywhere. And it's actually not really the case. You can get lots of really great French wines a lot of European or you know, a good fair amount of European wines, but international wines, it's a little hard. So let's talk a little bit about that. Do you think French people are as open to tasting international wines as? Well, <laughs> that's a complicated question. I think uh, things are changing now. Recently, the French people were used to buy French wine for sure, and in the past, the few foreign wines they used to buy were what I would call famous labels, only famous labels, famous names with high ratings from Parker, for instance. But they didn't really try to, to, to test a lot of wines. So the first place where you find wine when you want to buy is the shops, the retail shops. So this is where 
the hardest work is to be done in France. And uh, I'm working very hard with my team and my sales force in France to sell, uh, to sell in the retail shop. And I must say that I started my company in the 2010, and at that time it was really, really difficult. Uh, a lot of French people they were, were just looking at us and laughing sometimes. This, this happened to me. And uh, they were saying, are you crazy? We already have Bordeaux, Saint-Emilion, etc. We don't need your Rioja or whatever, or Tuscan wines. But now times are changing. Also the generation uh, is changing. And uh, now the young generation is traveling a lot, thanks to the low-cost uh, flights. Uh, they are much more, let's say, curious. And they are eager to, to discover. But... So this is quite good on one hand, but on the other hand, it is very hard to have them continue that. So when they test something, then they switch. But at least they, they test new things. And also my generation, I'm 46 years old, and my generation is changing. Now, just before this interview, I was visiting a shop around the corner in Madeleine, a very beautiful shop called The New Cave. And we were discussing about that. Today, they have some customers that are able to buy, let's say, 30 to 40 euros foreign bottles. And this is quite new. This is quite new because in the past, most of the people used to buy very cheap foreign wines, uh, under 10 euros, under 10 euros always. And this is changing. So, And this is a big challenge for, for us and for my company too. And this is also our strength because we are bringing in France some very good wines at every price level. Wines under 10 euros to 20, 40 and, and above. Well, certainly, and we'll get into that in a moment. Um, you had you had, basic, you had basically nothing but superstars at your salon the other day. And we'll, we'll get into uh, talking in more depth about a couple of them because, oh, a, a good handful are 100 out of 100 by, by Parker ratings. But, you know, that's interesting. I mean, wine, I remember from Canada, I, I, I passed through the Okanagan Valley on my way to, uh, to France a oh, decade ago or so. And I always compare Canada because Canada has like the strictest wine, like the wine importing rules. Like, even, from, even from Toronto, they can't really even get Vancouver wine. So I think France is a little bit more open than that. But I mean, it's true. It's an interesting point. It's like France is some of the best wines in the world why would you want others but the thing about it is is that everything gives a different terroir so when you become a real connoisseur of wine you want to taste other things very interesting if you're just joining us now we're speaking with Florent Berrer of Berrer Capteville I'm Paige Donner host of Paris Good Food and Wine Paris's first ever English language podcast about food and wine to be produced in and broadcast from Paris France Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. IOT, the Internet of Things. IOT Shipping tracks your value assets using the Internet of Things technology that gives you data points based on temperature, movement, and geolocation. For more information, contact us at IOT shipping.xyz. That's iotshipping.xyz.
bit about your background because you're very interesting. So you're from Bordeaux, which is, of course, like the wine mecca of the world. But you've spent now a lot of time in Spain. Did you fall in love with wine in Spain or just because you grew up in Bordeaux? I think both, but mainly because I grew up in Bordeaux and I always saw my father buying some Saint-Estef wine. He was not a real connoisseur, but at least he had that culture. And so I saw it and I grew up with that culture also. And I became really passionate when I was a teenager and really interested and really attracted by, by wine. And then when I went to Spain, I was completely open-minded and, and I tested a lot of wines from Spain and I, uh, I fell in love uh, with Spanish wines. And this is when I really decided to start the, that project that uh, would be born later in my life. Now, I know you've mentioned that music has played a big part in your life. Um, is there a way that music and wine kind of combine? Or? Sure, definitely. Um, I went to Spain because of music, because I'm a classical guitar player and I really love flamenco music too. So this is why I went to live and I started my career, my engineer career in Spain. And for me, there is um, uh, something that is really parallel be between wine and music. And it, it can be uh, resumed in only one word, it's emotion. And I think this is one of the big problems we have with wine today is that we try to, to avoid to, to set our emotion free and to substitute the emotion by words. And uh, with the music, we feel, let's say, more free immediately because you, you listen to music and you know if you love it or no. You, you, you don't mind if you know about music, but you know if you love or not that music. And I think with a wine is exactly the same. And you must trust yourself. If you like a wine, the wine is good. And it's not only the label. It's not only the first or second growth. It's a question of emotion. And this is really parallel for me between music and, uh, and wine. I just love when, uh, you know, great connoisseurs um, and figures in wine like, like yourself make that point because I think that that's the biggest thing that intimidates people at least maybe people in the United States for example they're like oh wine you have to know a lot about it before you know whether you can appreciate it and when you make that point of like no you just you know it because you love it you know I just I'm so glad you made that point Florent. <laughs> sure sure definitely this is at least how I work with my company this is something we give to the customers and also when I'm I often have to make some speech to public, to general public. And I say every time to everybody, trust yourself, just taste the wine and you just have to love or not love. It's just a, a matter of personal taste, but trust yourself. You know what is good. Wonderful. Okay. Now we're going to turn to a couple of the, of the wines. All right, so let's take a look at Contador. And now, why is Contador from Rioja in Spain? Why is that such a special winery for you? Well, Contador for me is one of my most important wineries in my portfolio, but not because of business, but because of emotion again. Because when I set up the company in the 2010, I started to knock at the doors of the wineries, explaining my project. Hello, I'm a French guy. I want to sell 
high quality, expensive foreign wine in France. So every, everybody thought that I was crazy <laughs> to, to launch this project. And Benjamin Romeo, the owner, answered me, well, you know, we have already worked in France. It's a very difficult market, even with my wine. But at least you can come at the winery and uh, we meet and we will see. Why not? So I went to the winery and uh, I had to pass some, a kind of exam with Benjamin. That's true. He made some tests with me. The first question he, told me, he asked me was, do you want to see the vines? And I said, yes, of course I want. And he, he was very surprised because most of the French people going to the winery, they only wanted to test the 100-point Parker wines they were not interested in working in the vines but i was i was for sure so he took me in the car and we went in to 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 see one parcel of wine a beautiful wine and uh okay it was full of mud okay so i had at least 30 centimeters of mud and all my feet it was horrible but we worked a lot uh it was in winter in january i remember and then he asked me do you want to see another one oh, yes of course i want looked at me, very surprised. Okay, let's go. And so we went from one parcel to another during one full day. One full day. We started at 10 in the morning and we, finishing, we finished at night in the cove where he was uh, aging his wine, uh, but something very special. And we spent there half part of the night. And he told me, Florent, you know that I never receive people more than half an hour. But you, you have something different. You're really interested in the wine and uh, in what I'm doing. So let's work together in France. And we started. And we, were, we, we have been quite successful. Wow, that's a wonderful story. Like a real human, like you said, you know, a really human story where each of you recognize something in the other. Another thing you've mentioned to me about this winery is that he pays attention to every little detail on his vines. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, Benjamin Romeo is, um, let's say, crazy about each small detail. But this is what makes his wines very great. And uh, he takes care about, for instance, just an example, pruning. He has about 80 small parcels, a single vineyard, each one less than one hectare, let's say two acres. And he's the only one pruning all of them with one worker together with him because he wants to check how he's cut every every bunch because it's, uh, it's very important for the quality of the vine than for, for the, the year, for the cycle, the vegetation cycle. Another detail that's crazy is that he has, been, he has built the, the cellar on a hill and uh, he has removed part of the hill and built the cellar with the same shape of the hill with terraces. And on each terrace he has planted some thyme and rosemarine uh, plants, about 20,000 uh, plants. And during the, um, during the, the summer, um, during the afternoon, it's, it's quite hot. And just at uh, about 5 o'clock in the, the afternoon, then there is, um, I don't know the English word, a brumisateur, you know? Um, I don't know how uh, to say it. Like a, like a diffuser, like a... Water, um, no, uh, above the, the plants and with an aspiration system. And he brings the, the, the air, aromatized with uh, thyme and rosemary, into the cellar, in, in the barrack rooms. Oh, 
okay, so it's like a misting, like a misting system. It mists the water that's been f- like perfumed with these. Exactly, that's correct. That's correct. Excuse my English is very, very, very limited. Yeah, and um, no, your your English is great. I was just trying to picture what it was you're you're describing because I've never heard of this before. What a what a, that's unique. But this is the kind of detail because he told me, Florent, I want my wine to live in the same atmosphere than in the field until the bottling. Yes. Okay, so that's something that you don't stumble across every day. Okay, all right. So now let's move from Spain. Move to your other hundred out of hundred, <laughs> Parker. Not not that not that everybody pays attention. I mean, I respect Parker, but not that everybody pays attention to Parker's, you know, point system. And not that everybody has to, but still, when you see it, it's worth mentioning. Okay, but so we're going to go to Germany. We're going to go to the Moselle, and we're going to talk about Marcus Molitor and his Rieslings. He's got wonderful Pinot Noirs too, and wonderful Auslese as well, the sweet wines. But oh my goodness, his Rieslings! Now, how like what sets this guy apart so much? Well, Marcus Molitor is another, um, <laughs> I would say, crazy guy, uh, as I love him. And Marcus, um, like Benjamin Romeo of Contador, started from scratch. He started from 30 years ago. No, t- today is one of the pop of the wine on, on, on earth. And he's, he's the real king of Riesling. And uh, in Moselle, in the mid-Moselle, uh, close to Bencastler City, he produces about 100 different wines. But some of them only... 50 liters that, that means 70 bottles so it's crazy between dry medium dry sweet wines and he's he's also crazy about every every detail and uh, meticulous and uh, he's working on terrific uh, slopes of about 80 percent above the moselle it's amazing. He, he has about 80 workers because you cannot have any machine there because of the slopes. And um, I, think, I think you meant to say like 80 degree slopes, like the angle is so steep. Exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. Here in Europe, we, 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 um, we, speak, we, we talk about the inclination, yes, in degree. So 80 de- degrees, it's, uh, it's tremendous, tremendous. Well, you know, another thing that, that's really interesting about um, Marcus Molitor, and I read it in your, in your communication material, was how 100 years ago, the Rieslings from his area were almost more esteemed than the Bordeaux wines. And I had no, I had no idea about that. Yeah, that's correct. The uh, Rieslings of Moselle were the most expensive wines in the world, much more expensive than Bordeaux wines. Yeah, that's true. That's correct. <laughs> So that's interesting. So it's it's almost like he's trying to kind of have a renaissance for his region. Exactly, exactly. And Marcus is um, a real leader of the renaissance in, in Moselle. That's correct. All right, so now we're going to go to another superstar wine. And I mean this really tongue-in-cheek because, okay, now, what's the name of the winery and who's the owner? Well, uh, we are talking about Il Palagio in Tuscany, in Italy, and the, the owner is Sting, the singer. And does his wife, is Trudy, um, is Trudy involved in the winery? Sure, sure, sure. That's the story of the couple. They, they, first of all, they purchased the property in Tuscany as a family house, just to have a rest uh, during every summer. 
because they love Tuscany. They fell in love with Tuscany. And they decided also to produce wine. When they saw the soil, and they started to produce wine, but with the local people, with the local workers, respecting the tradition, and um, they decided to farm organically uh, vine and also vegetables. So that's a very in interesting concept, and uh, both Sting and Trudy are completely involved in that deeply. You know, I was, uh, I'm glad that you're clarifying all this because sometimes, well, in the United States, it's become a bit of a, of a trend. I think more in the U.S. than maybe in Europe. But, you know, lo celebrities will put their name on wines. And in Napa, as you know, you don't even have to own any vines or have any, pro like nothing. You don't have to have anything to do with the wine. You just put your label on it. But now here, you're saying that that's not the case at all. They're very involved. Yes, exactly. They are very involved. And then when we sell the wine... We don't even say that this belongs to, to Sting and Trudy. This is only branded Il Palagio, and that's beautiful to me. And um, Sting and Trudy are very humble. They are really, really humble. They are hard workers, and um, of course, they really want to work organically. This is a very important project for them, and they respect the local people. They give work to them and uh, employment. And, uh, and the wines are excellent because the winemaker is Paolo Cacciornia. He's a very famous and also humble winemaker from Tuscany, but that produces wine in Tuscany and uh, in Sicilia on the Etna Volcano also. Wow. Okay, so I'm starting to realize that you do a lot of traveling. You must, you, I mean, you have, you had, what, I think about 50 wines showcased at this, so 50 winemakers, which there was like three of the big event rooms in the Plaza Atheni that were filled. But in order to be able to really discover all these properties, you must have really done a lot of globe trotting. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I used to travel a lot, but this is what I really love. Indeed. Of course, I cannot survive if I don't sell. But the part of the job I really love is to go to source, to visit, to knock at the doors, to spend some time in the vineyards, in the cellars with the winemakers. And uh, I travel a lot to Spain, Italy, Lebanon, Argentina, New Zealand, Chile, Germany, Austria. And now I'm starting to go also to the USA, California, because I discovered already very outstanding wineries, real, real beautiful things. And next year, we'll start also with South Africa and Australia. Good, good, good. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that about, about California. And I would have to also mention Oregon and Washington. Of course, of course. I've just had time enough to, to travel to California in September. But, uh, of course, Oregon and Washington produce very outstanding wines. Well, this has been really informative, and um, I know I think sometimes too though when people listen uh, listen to conversations about wine, they're like, "Well, that sounds great, but how can I start to educate my palate? How can I start to be one of these people who can who get to taste these wines?" What would be your advice? What would be your advice to someone who who really wants to, they secretly want to discover wine, but maybe they're a little bit I don't know, a little bit timid. First of all, you have to taste and taste and taste and taste a lot of bottles. So you have several ways to, to do it. Uh, you can buy bottles on your own where, where you can. You can also go to some schools. Here in Europe, we have a WSET program. Maybe you, you can find it in the USA also. 
you can get a diploma with several levels and the first and second levels are quite easy, quite informative at least. So they will give you uh, the right amount of information you need to start and then taste, 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 practice, practice. Yeah, it's the kind of homework that I think is the, probably the most enjoyable kind of homework. It's like, well, I have to go home and practice my wine tasting. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure it is. <laughs> well, thank you so very much, Florent, for taking the time. I know you've been absolutely so busy the last couple of days putting that salon on and dealing with, you know, I, I mean, that's a, that's a huge event to undertake. Thank you very much. I thank you, Paige, for this interview. I wish I spoke a better English, at least. But thank you very much for taking time. No, your English is, is absolutely wonderful, and your accent is what's going to keep everybody listening. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Season 5 of Paris Good Food and Wine is generously being brought to you by IOT Shipping. Contact them at iotshipping.xyz. IOT, the Internet of Things. This episode of Paris Good Food and Wine has been brought to you by Paris Food and Wine. You can find us at parisfoodandwine.net. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. A big thank you to all who helped make this show possible, and especially a grand merci beaucoup from me, your host and producer, Paige Donner. You can find this and past episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Paris Food Wine and like us on Facebook at Paris Food and Wine.